You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. Today, we are going to be continuing through our sermon series, Major in the Minors, uh, where we've been giving an overview of the, the themes and lessons that are found in the minor prophets from the Old Testament, uh, with the hopes that we'll all be challenged by it and convicted by it and encouraged by it, and also so that you'll take this information home with you so that you can study through these prophets yourself as well. So hopefully you've been doing that and reading through them as, as we've been learning about them. On that end, speaking of the Minor Prophets, how many people here know the story of Jonah? Jonah and the whale, Jonah being sent to Nineveh, you know, come on, more, more than you know the story of Jonah. We all know the story of Jonah, right? It's a popular story of God's mercy triumphing over judgment. It's wonderful. But how many people here also know the prophetic vision of Nahum? Oh, interesting. Just as I thought. But we should, we should know about Nahum. uh, And we're going to be studying all about the book of Nahum today. And we should know about it because it it is actually the sequel to the events of Jonah. uh, Providing for us, you know, the riveting and and action-packed conclusion, really, to the fate and downfall of the empire of Assyria and its capital city, Nineveh, at the hands of a holy god. And um, you might be asking, well, if, if Nahum is the sequel to Jonah, then why are we studying Nahum before Jonah? It's a good question. And the answer is that next week is Family Sunday, and uh, the content of Nahum, well, it's inappropriate for children. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Jonah next week. What I'm saying is it's going to get a little intense this morning. I'm not going to go like in the, you know, vivid detail like Nahum does, but, you know, think of battle scenes from movies like Braveheart or Troy or Saving Private Ryan or something. That's that's how intense Nahum is. And, um, you know, as someone said the other other day or yesterday at our men's breakfast, you know, it's a perfect, you know, just light topic for Mother's Day. It's great. No, it'll be good. But first... Let's read Nahum 1 verse 1. As, as uh, most of the, the prophets do this, they give us the author and the context, uh, what's going on. So Nahum 1 1, let's, let's, let's turn there. It says, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So we can read here that the author is a prophet named Nahum, who's from a place called Elkosh. And how many people know where that is? I'm glad no one put up their hand because nobody knows where that is. Uh, The the location is lost to history, unfortunately. There there are theories as to where in Judah or Israel it was, possibly even somewhere in the empire of Assyria, but no one actually really knows where it is. There's some some theories, but again, no one knows. But what's interesting about this book, though, is that it's it's been written down in the form of a poem. Uh, It's an acrostic poem or a partial acrostic poem to be exact, in which each line or, or thought starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's kind of a common way that they did poems back then. 
Of course, we lose that poetic flow once it's translated into English. But regardless, what we can surmise is that the prophet Nahum was also a poet, just like King David was. And so while God had given Nahum this very vivid, prophetic vision of the pending judgment and, and, and downfall of the Assyrian capital city of Nineveh, and then told him to write it down, Nahum then chose to do that in the form of poetry, which is pretty cool. And I should point out as well that while this message was about Nineveh, it's concerning Nineveh, it, it was probably actually written for the people of Judah to read, to give them hope, to give them hope of salvation. And so the poem starts like this, Nahum 1, 2 to 3. Right off the bat, it gets really intense. It says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. This is the word of the Lord. So we go back to verse 1, which we read. It said we read the word oracle. It's an oracle concerning Nineveh. And um, quite often that word oracle is actually translated as, as the word burden or a burdensome pronouncement. And after reading these first two verses of the prophecy, we can kind of get a clue as to why like, this is heavy. This, this pronouncement is a burden for Nahum. He's been given the difficult task of, of announcing the Lord's coming wrath and avenging justice upon the people of Nineveh for their evil and their wickedness. Speaking of which, for those of us who, who put our hands up earlier when I asked about Jonah, you might remember that this is a similar announcement of judgment that Jonah had brought to Nineveh about a century earlier. But to Jonah's disappointment, the, the, the king and citizens of, of the city repented in sackcloth and ashes, and so God relented from, from doling out that judgment on them at the time. And there's a pretty good reason, though, as to why Jonah gets upset. He kind of has a temper tantrum about it, that God didn't destroy them. And there's a pretty good reason why. And it's because the Assyrians, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, were a violent, oppressive, and wicked people. In fact, they're the ones who would later reduce uh, Samaria, the capital city of Israel, to, to rubble and then scatter the Israelites throughout their empire. So there's a pretty good reason why he's upset. And on that end, I should mention that the Neo-Assyrian Empire at the time was, was the biggest empire of the known world. I have, I have a map that I want to show you if you want to throw that up there. There we go. So probably at the time that Jonah prophesied to them, it was the dark green part. And then in the time of uh, um, Nahum, it's the light green part. That's how big the empire of Assyria was. So the whole Mesopotamia area, all the way down into Egypt. And you can see, I don't know if you can read that right above where it says before 671 BC. Right above that, there's a, there's a city called Thebes in Egypt. We're going to come back to that city in a bit. The only thing you'll notice, though, is Judah, right in, in the middle there, 
is yellow. They don't own Judah. In the middle of the whole empire, do you guys remember why? It's prophesied in, in Micah and Hosea that God would protect them, that they would take out Israel, but not Judah. Just a little tidbit of information there that shows how God is sovereign, right? But basically, we can see that, you know, the Assyrians, they ruled and they, and they conquered from Mesopotamia into Egypt, and they did that with violent force and brutality. They would send their armies everywhere and laying siege to all these cities. They were basically like the Mongols or the, or the Nazis or the Persians or the Romans of their day. And again, while they did repent after Jonah visited, obviously it didn't stick, right? Their, their empire grew twice the size after that event. A couple of generations later, Nineveh was back doing the same things they were doing before, violently plundering and overthrowing nations, raping and pillaging, dispersing and scattering conquered peoples throughout their empire in order to diminish their identity and nationality, demanding their vassal nations pay them money, under the threat of death or exile, the list goes on. They were not very nice people. And unfortunately for them, as Nahum reminds us, God is a God of justice and power, and therefore he cannot let evil or the guilty go unchecked. He also reminds us, though, that God is slow to anger. But that doesn't mean he never gets angry. He does. You know, a lot of people these days in what I would say is our overly sensitive society, many of whom think they're intellectual for thinking this way, but they often take issue at this idea that God's anger and wrath, thinking that, you know, God must not be loving or, or that he must be evil himself or really mean if he's vengeful. But in my opinion, that, that take is just plain silly. It's ridiculous. Because what would actually be evil or unloving is if God did nothing about evil or sin. That would be evil. Our hope as believers, in fact, rests in the promise of God destroying sin and evil. That's the victory of the cross. And that's what we look forward to when, when Jesus comes again in glory. In, in the book of Revelation, the people of God rejoice when Babylon, which, which represents the, all the demonically influenced and evil empires of the day, they rejoice when Babylon is finally destroyed and Jesus reigns. And, and when we read through the Bible, we can clearly see that God's people throughout the ages, they, they never question God's wrath or judgment, instead, from, from the Exodus to Psalms to, to Revelation, they, they ask questions like, how long, O Lord, until you take vengeance on, on the wicked, on our enemies? How long, O Lord, will you allow your people to be persecuted? How long will you let the wicked prosper and your children suffer? And are, are we not 
all as, as witnesses to, to the suffering, to the wickedness, and to the evils of our own modern society, are we not also daily crying out for God's justice? As uh, Joshua Ryan Butler writes, we live in a world where the weak get beat up and the poor get exploited. The faithful suffer while the wicked prosper. In this world, our world, God's people participate in the pain of his patience with his rebellious world. The cry of protest for followers of Jesus is not, God, if you are good, why would you ever intervene? It is rather, God, because you are good, why do you wait so long? The cry of the righteous is a cry for God to execute his justice and wrath on the unrighteous. To destroy evil and suffering. And that's why in, in Nahum, God's wrath is actually expressed as the hope of Judah. God is finally taking down the evil empire of Assyria. Let's read this in Nahum 1.15. It says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. What this means is that God's wrath, his his vengeance and judgment against empires and individuals who perpetuate wickedness and violence is both just and good. It's good news to those who've fallen victim to their evil and violence. It's good news because they can now be free to serve and worship God once again without fear or persecution. And this is good news that we can also look forward to, which again will be fully realized on the day of the Lord when when Jesus comes again in glory to crush evil and judge the world in righteousness. As uh, John Mark Comer writes, Yahweh's justice is a good thing. I cringe when I read he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Even when I nuance it out, it's still terrifying. But remember, God's end goal is a world with no evil. Yahweh's justice is about the healing and renewal of the world. Personally speaking, I'd say this, this renewal can't come soon enough, especially because sometimes it does feel like God's justice takes too long, right? Sometimes it it, it does feel like God is absent from the mess and the things that we're going through, or that he's not doing anything about evil or about suffering. But we're, we're reminded here that that just isn't the case. He is, and he will deal with sin and evil. He will deal with the guilty. The important thing we have to remember about that, though, is is that he doesn't instantly lash out at it like we think we want him to. And and let's be honest, if we actually thought about it, this is a good thing as well, because if if he was quick to anger over sin and evil, we'd, we'd all be toast. No, the good news which Nahum reminds us of is that the Lord is slow to anger. Or as it says in 2 Peter, he's not slow in how some might call slowness, but rather he's patient in that all might come to repentance. Because again, that's his preference. God doesn't delight in wrath. 
He'd prefer that everyone repent and, and, and be forgiven and be in relationship with him. On that note, I, I do think another issue that some people have against this idea of, of wrath, God's wrath, is that they do imagine it as some kind of uncontrollable rage or lashing out in anger or something. Like God's just angrily waiting for people to mess up so he can strike them down. But we need to understand that this is, this is not at all what God's anger and wrath is like. And to be fair, that's usually what human anger is like. Right? It's often a knee-jerk rage where we, where we act without thinking in our fury. Right? Someone makes us angry and we say stupid things and we do stupid things. We get into fights and that's how murder happens. Right? But not God's. His is always righteous and good and just, and patient, and long-suffering, and well thought out. For example, uh, last year, one of, my, one of my sons came home from school, from middle school, and he reported to uh, my wife and I that another boy had decided to randomly jump on his back and pin him down to the ground for no reason. Like, he was just walking down the hallway, and this boy just, just jumped on him, pinned him to the ground. So that was obviously not only painful for him, but also traumatizing and, and embarrassing, right? It's right in front of all the other kids walking down the hallway. And so I'll admit that right after I heard this, I was immediately upset and angry, and I was ready to find this kid and lay down some discipline. If you know what I mean. My Scottish rage kicked in. I was ready to destroy I was furious. Of course, I didn't, though, because it's illegal. And more importantly, not very Christian of me. But yet, as a sinful human being, that was my initial desire and my knee-jerk reaction. Especially as someone who wants to protect my son, right? As a father who wants to protect his son. Now, while that example definitely displays the same kind of jealousy or, or loving zeal which God has for his people, at the same time, it's also the opposite of what God's avenging wrath is like. He doesn't lash out uncontrollably in rage at the first sign of evil. No, instead, what we see throughout Scripture is that he lovingly warns the guilty, and he gives them time to turn back to him and to seek forgiveness. Because again, he prefers mercy and compassion. He prefers forgiveness and loving kindness. As we can read in Exodus 34, 6-7, when it says, The Lord passed before Moses and, and, and proclaimed to him, The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will, know, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So this, this is God telling Moses who he is what, is, what his name is. He's the God of all gods, and he's merciful, he's gracious, he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to thousands, slow to anger, forgiving sin, 
but he's also a God of justice. You can't just let the guilty off scot-free. Again, that would be evil. Though I hope we can still see the contrast there between his mercy and his judgment, that he's loving and forgiving to thousands, but only visiting the iniquity to the third and fourth generations. In other words, he's way, way, way more partial to loving forgiveness than to punishment, to mercy than to judgment. The ratio is thousands to three or four. But again, that doesn't mean he never gets angry. It means that when he gets angry, our time has run out. For the unrepentant and unapologetic, his patience and, and, and his offer of grace will one day end. His wrath will come against evil. He will protect the innocent, as he should. And yet again, that's also good news, if you're on the right side of it. And on that end, the Lord had given the Neo-Assyrian Empire hundreds of years, hundreds of years, to relent and repent, even sending his prophet to warn them. But besides that one time in Jonah when they repented and God mercifully held back his judgment, ultimately they refused to listen, they refused to change. And they even at one point laid siege upon the nation of Judah during the reign of King Hezekiah, which seems to have been the last straw for God and and the beginning of the end for Assyria. That's when the Assyrian nation starts to crumble. And as the people of Nineveh would discover, and as theologian Charles Feinberg writes, it is ever a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God when he arises to execute the sentence of his righteous wrath. For as it says in Nahum 1, 6-8, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Who can stand against the Lord? What's, what's interesting to note is that years earlier, as I mentioned, when the, when the Assyrians had laid siege to Jerusalem, the commander of the Assyrian army had come up to the gates of the city and all his, his pride and he, and he taunted the soldiers of Judah and, and the citizens of Judah who were standing along the walls and along the ramparts of Jerusalem, saying to them from 2 Kings 18, he said to them, don't listen to Hezekiah because he is misleading you when he says, the Lord will save us. Have the gods of any nation ever saved their land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvarim and Hena and Iva? Did, did they save Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the land saved their land from my hand? Will the Lord really save Jerusalem from my hand? 
He's implying that no, no one, no God could stand against the might of Assyria. That even Judah's God, the Lord, Yahweh, was just as powerless as all the other gods of all the other nations that they'd conquered. He's saying, who can stand against us? But now the prophet Nahum is turning their taunt back upon them and saying, who can stand against the Lord? That's a rhetorical question. Because they, and, but the answer is no one. No one can stand against them. He's the God of great power. And we see both sides of this truth. And we, we, we fall on, on one or the other. We see both sides of this truth that no one can stand against him. First, that he's a God of refuge and a stronghold for those he knows. No one, no one can get to those he protects. No one can separate him from those he loves. But on the other side of the coin, no one can stop the Lord when he comes up against his enemies in judgment and wrath. And unfortunately, this, again, this is precisely what Nineveh had brought upon themselves in, in their wickedness, occultism, their violence, and their imperialistic oppression against Judah, Israel, and all the other nations. Because of that, God proclaims three times throughout Nahum to Nineveh, and he says, Behold, I am against you. Those are not the words you want to hear from God. They're the last words you'd ever want to hear. Behold, I am against you. On that end, Nahum continues to taunt the Ninevites in his prophetic poem in, in chapters 2 and 3, ironically telling them to man their ramparts, to reinforce their walls, to dress for battle, to watch the road, to preserve their water and strengthen their forts to make sure they're as strong and, and ready for battle as they can be. It's, it's almost as if he wants them to have no excuse when they find out that they're nothing, that they're, they're basically powerless compared to the strength and omnipotent power of the God of creation when he comes in judgment and wrath. No matter what, they, they cannot stand against him. He then compares Nineveh to the once mighty Egyptian city of Thebes, which I pointed out earlier. That was a mighty city where the pharaohs lived. And it had fallen to the army of the Assyrians decades before and, and had been just utterly reduced to nothing. And just like them, Nahum writes, they'll be overthrown and scattered and brought to shame and desolation and ruin. If Thebes could fall to them, they will certainly fall to God. And then he concludes the prophetic poem with these words to them. Nahum 3.19. He says, There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? So again, while this, while this prophecy is, is certainly bad news for Nineveh, it's also good news of great joy for Judah and all the other nations who'd fallen under the violent and oppressive regime of that empire. 
Basically the same way that the destruction and, and downfall of the Nazi regime was good news to the citizens of Europe and, of course, to the Jews. God's wrath over evil would bring justice and peace to the land. God's wrath is their hope. And again, it's also ours. It's what all creation longs for with groaning. The end of evil and suffering. The end of corruption. The end of tyranny. The end of violence and death and suffering. The end of empire. Replaced by the good and peaceful and eternal reign of the kingdom of God. And on that end, chapters 2 and 3 actually describe how the the city of Nineveh will fall. In fact, Nahum actually vividly describes to, to the detail the sounds, the colors, and the events of the destruction of the city. Almost as if he was standing in the midst of the great battle himself. He writes that the streets of the city will be attacked by soldiers riding on chariots who would be clothed in scarlet, brandishing red shields and striking with sword and spear. Picture that. Chariots clothed in red, brandishing red shields and striking with sword and spear. And then he writes that the walls of the city of Nineveh would be broken down by rushing water temporarily flooding the city, that the city would then be plundered and reduced to ash by fire, that the chaos would be so great that that they'd run around scared like drunkards, that their kings and nobles would be slain, and, and, and some of them would attempt to run in fear. He writes that there would be heaps of bodies that would lie slain in the streets, while many more would flee and become scattered throughout the nations just like they'd done so many times to those they'd murdered or subjugated into exile. It's, it's intense, and, it, and, it's, and it's violent. But here's the, the amazing thing about this prophecy, is that every single detail comes to pass. In fact, I, I have a picture of an ancient Babylonian tablet here that I want to show you. There it is there. It's in Babylonian script. So this was discovered in the 19th century, and and it's been titled The Fall of Nineveh Chronicle. And it describes how in the year 612 BC, about this is about 30 to 40 years after Nahum's prophecy, the allied armies of the Babylonians and the Medes finally conquered and overthrew the Assyrians for good by destroying and sacking the Assyrian capital city of Nineveh. And guess what color the army of the Babylonians wore? Scarlet. And they had copper shields, which would have glowed red in the flames of the city. And guess what their main tactic of war was? Riding on chariots, brandishing sword and spear. And guess how they finally broke into the city after laying siege to it for years? 
Well, it's generally agreed upon that it was during a season when it had rained so much that the Tigris River, which is along the city of Nineveh, started to flood. And so they used that to their strategic advantage, and they opened up the dam of the Tigris River, causing the water to flow toward the city of Nineveh, which broke down its walls and temporarily flooded the city, also giving them a way in. And furthermore, archaeological evidence also proves that the city was then burned to the ground. God showed Nahum all of these things, all these details. He showed him how it would come to pass, and that's exactly how it happened. And I should point out as well that that at the time it was prophesied, no one, No one would have imagined that the Neo-Assyrian Empire could be overthrown and brought to nothing. This was impossible. They were way too powerful. Even scholars have a hard time understanding how Assyria fell. Yet we know why. And Nahum tells us. And, and to that, I, I just have to say that whoever says that, that God doesn't exist is either unaware or just deliberately ignoring the evidence of prophecy in Scripture. There's hundreds and hundreds of fulfilled and proven prophecies which remind us over and over again that not only does God exist, but that He's omnipotent and sovereign over all things and all events which come to pass. He is in control. But this also means that we should take what he says and who he is very seriously. And to that end, I want to remind us of three things. The first is, is incredibly important. And it's, uh, it's, it's God's role and prerogative to deliver wrath and vengeance, not ours. It's God's role and prerogative to deliver wrath and vengeance, not ours. I say this because too many believers over the years and throughout history have gotten this idea in their head that, that they're meant to be God's hands and feet in, in doling out judgment on, on sinners. Or in the same way, we often try to justify our own actions when we retaliate or when we take revenge or speak poorly of, of those who've hurt us or against those who've hurt us. Right? But this is not the way. As Jesus once said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. That disqualifies every single one of us, except for the Lord. The only one who's worthy of doling out true justice and wrath upon anyone is the Lord. Again, he's the only one who actually truly knows our hearts, and he's the only one who judges us with patience and wisdom and righteousness, who gives ample time and opportunity for repentance and mercy and, and, and in that, we imperfect humans are just functionally and emotionally incapable. Instead, as Christians were commanded in Romans 12, 16 to 21, it says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. 
Repay no one evil for evil. This is no one. There's no, no exceptions. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So simply put, leave the wrath stuff to God. That's his department. Instead, we should place our trust in his ability to deal with evil and take hope in the fact that he will, knowing that he's slow to anger, he's patient with us, he will deal, deal with it at the right time. For our part, as Christians, we're, we're to do good and love one another as Christ has loved us. It's important that we remember that. Number two, the, se- the second thing we can learn from Nahum here is that God's wrath over sin is very real. And that's why Jesus came to rescue us. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So you think, well, that's just Old Testament stuff. Well, this is New Testament stuff right here. The good news, though, is that the Lord loves us so much and prefers to see us rescued and, and forgiven that he took that wrath upon himself in our place. That is incredible. Romans 5, 8 to 9 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, enemies against God, right? Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 also says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, Jesus, Jesus Christ took the wrath of God we deserved upon himself at the cross. He who knew no sin became sin so that through faith in him we can now be forgiven and set free so that we can no, no longer have to fear judgment or, or, or live under the weight of our condemnation and guilt. Instead, through Christ, God becomes our stronghold and our refuge. So I implore those of you who haven't, Let Jesus' loving kindness lead you to repentance and to his grace. Let his sacrificial love for you bring you to confess your sin before the Lord and to surrender your life and follow after him in faith. Don't, Don't wait until your time runs out like the people of Nineveh did. Again, God doesn't delight in wrath. He delights in your salvation. He wants you to be set free and given eternal life today. And those, for those believers who, who are just humming and hawing and not living their life in obedience to the Lord, 
Same thing. Fall on your knees in repentance before him. Do not presume upon his grace. For as it says in John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We don't want that for anyone, right? We want to see people believe on Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And if that's you this morning, there's going to be a prayer team at the back after the message who would love to pray for you. I'd love to pray for you as well. Just come and find me. And this leads me to my final point this morning. Number three, as believers, we're called to be like Nahum in bringing the good news of salvation to those who are still under God's wrath. Again, while the message of Nineveh was of Nahum was bad news for Nineveh. It was, it was written for the people of Judah. It was one of good news for them because God was finally going to crush evil and set them free from their tyranny. And this is, this is the same type of good news that we're called as believers to bring to the world. We're, we're called to proclaim in a, in a loving way, not a condemning way, in a loving way, the glorious truth that the blood of Jesus has set all who believe in his name free from the power of sin and evil which once controlled us. That freedom is available. And like Nahum and all all the prophets, we've been filled by the Spirit of God for that reason, to declare this to the world. Because if we don't, how else Will the world know it? The Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah and, and even echoes Nahum's sentiment about the feet who bring good news when, when he writes in Romans 10, 14 to 15. He says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Church, let's be clear. You have heard the word being preached. You hear it every single Sunday. And you are being sent to declare it to others before it's too late for them. Because again, if you don't, how will they know that the judgment and wrath of God is soon coming upon them? How will they know they need to be saved from the wages of their sin? How will they know the good news that Jesus died on the cross for them and that he rose from the dead to make their salvation possible and give them eternal life? How will they know unless you tell them? Church, you are being sent to to be those beautiful feet which carry the good news. The good news that one day the wrath of God will come in righteousness and justice through Jesus Christ. When all evil, wickedness, sin, suffering, and death will finally be destroyed and brought to nothing. When the world will be set free and made new. 
and that through faith in Jesus, because of his great mercy and grace for us, we can look forward to that day, not with, not with fear of hell, but with hope and confidence and eternal life in the kingdom of God. Hebrews 9, 27 to 28 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus coming again to judge the earth in righteousness is good news for us as believers. It's what we wait for. It's what we long for. But we should also want to make sure that it's good news for our neighbors and our family members and our coworkers. For as it says, how beautiful are the feet who bring the good news. My prayer this morning is that your feet would be those feet.